Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered that I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, they said when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? 
What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, living, flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about... Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. 
So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, good morning. And it's certainly a joy and an absolute privilege to be here, to be home. And, and um, you know, want to thank God for Pastor Tony and Pastor Ian. I think I saw Eric here, if I'm not mistaken, and Chad and everyone else who is here. And to the family in Bethlehem, hello. <laughs> it's still Eagle Country, we say. And Eunice is here. Uh, she didn't get to read. I was thinking of a nice joke, and I figured, you know, I was a quiet guy. Then the Eunice Tom came over, and you see the fruits. <laughs> That's, there's a storm going across Europe. It's called the Eunice Tom. We were discussing it yesterday. Like, you hit my life, and three beautiful kids came over. But we pray for God's blessings on those. Uh, it's certainly a privilege for us to be here. Uh, it's good to be in Makanji, our first time. And I trust God that he will continue to bless us and strengthen all of us. Um, we, you know, I come to this with, uh, with a loaded heart this morning. I was thinking, how do we really progress here? Well, first off, I noticed in our time of worship that our worship leader kept echoing this thing about your praise, your praise, your praise. So permit me to share just a few updates with us about the ministry, and then we'll get into the scriptures. Uh, quite a rich section uh, of, of the scriptures. When Denise asked me if I'll be willing to share from this, I thought, what a loaded <laughs> section of the scriptures. So early last year, um, uh, as a, just in continuation of, you know, the encouragement that we have been receiving through many years, and, and you know, this has gone by over 20 years now. Uh, our first car we owned was handed to us by New Covenant. Uh, I still remember Jim Frank taking us out there somewhere in Bethlehem say, you sign here, but you're going to pay $1. And I'm thinking, why do you pay $1? But, you know, I was new, didn't know a thing. And the, I think the neat part about the story is the Sunday I walked into New Covenant was a Sunday right after September 11th. Okay? And picture this. I'm totally new, zero context. I've heard about some airplanes hitting places prayed about it, called the Moody Radio, prayed. But here am I, and I was dressed in typical African garb, pretty much looking like one of somebody from Afghanistan. <laughs> and I walked in, you know, in what is supposed to be the darkest day in the history of the nation, and received instant welcome, and to the glory of God, and really. So early last year, uh, the Lord blessed us, as all of you came together uh, through your Christmas offering with a little over 28000 In fact, it was almost $30,000. And I turned over to my board and I said, what do we do here? 
Well, in story, six years ago, we had felt impressed of the Lord to begin a transformational educational program for the kids who will then rise up to be lifelong champions for the Lord Jesus Christ in bringing lasting change, kingdom change, through Cameroon and into the nations in West Central Africa and what have you. So we started a school called Hope Academy and had graduated a number of uh, kids through the elementary school. And so when the offering came and we were under pressure from, you know, the state officials and some of the folks involved with us said, well, it's time you get to the middle school. And we felt, well, the Lord has to show us his beating on that. The funds came and the folks on my board said, there you go. You didn't plan for this, didn't expect it. This is the biggest priority. Let's roll with that. So in obedience, we went ahead and began work. I'd like you to bring up the first slide here for you to see a little bit uh, what things looked like before New Covenant stepped into the sin, before friends and partners of Hope Outreach came into the sin. Now, one thing that I want to note is the old structure you see to the bottom right of the screen. That was actually a facility that had a horrible history. Time will fail me to give you all. This thing was at the time over 60 years old. Turns out that is the same home from which my mother had fled for her life with a six-month-old baby in the womb. The gentleman speaking to you today. She had been badly beaten, abused, and she felt two things needed to happen. Otherwise, well, it would be doomed. She needed to run and to ensure safety. Else, she will be dead. The baby in the womb will be dead. So God preserved her, and I came through, and, you know, the story is long. That facility was haunted by evil spirits, and when we begin ministry, somehow my dad, who at this time has become a believer, says, can you use that place for your ministry? And I thought, really, are you kidding? No, 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 no. Well, nobody goes there because it's haunted by evil spirits. I know for us in America, it's probably like, what do you mean a place is haunted by evil spirits? That means you go there, you got knocked out by unclean spirits. These things are real. Don't mind that in the academy we say forget about them. So we went in, had a time of prayer and fasting, cleaned up the place, and began using it. Well, so when we felt this is the right location in the heart of conflict in Waterview, uh, ongoing conflict is nicely located, let's build a school there. Well, sure enough, opposition rises. And opposition rises from rather unexpected quarters. These were friends of ours. And this is where I bring you to something that many of us may not remember. But I would encourage you to go back. Because this is right around April of 2021. And on Friday, a team of investigators comes to this particular site to establish who owns it. At the time, construction has started for the middle school, for some of the classrooms for the middle school. And Eunice and I are before the Lord. Help us. How do we do this? If you understand how corrupt systems work, it's justice to the highest beater. And we're not going to play that game. So, Lord... Guide us, show us. And we're praying for direction. We're asking the Lord, is this a fasting battle? Is it an offering? Which kind of battle is this? And on Sunday morning, April 25th, please go check the podcast. Pastor Jack is preaching in New Covenant, and the title of the sermon is Unconventional Warfare. I kid you not. It's as if the Lord had used New Covenant to send the seed money for this project, and the Lord would again send through New Covenant the word of direction to overcome all the opposition. 
we listened to that message Sunday evening. He had preached in the morning, and Sunday evening, I'm just thinking, Lord, show me something, and I go to the website, and I'm listening to this, and I'm so convicted, and all I hear the Holy Spirit say to my heart, give me a week of praise. Give me a week of praise. And I'm thinking, well, as a mathematician, when you have people coming against you in legal terms with a frivolous lawsuit, what do you do? Get the best lawyer in town. No, that's not how the Lord wants this handled. Give me a week of praise. Those of you who follow us on Facebook, you will notice April 26th till the start of May, we have a week-long thing, week of praise, week of praise. This is what that was about. We're being obedient to the Word. And in point three of his lesson, Pastor Jack asked this question, who are the friends with whom you thought you had made peace with whom you can no longer be at peace? I'm thinking, What? What is this? But it was all just packaged and released. And so we do the week of praise, and then the next three months are, you know, call it a roller coaster. But while all of this is happening, let's move to the next slide. Because it's amazing, as they're pushing, God is saying, I'm in this, and I'm raising this structure for my glory and for my honor, and my name will be exalted. So by the time June, July comes in, everything is done. We don't have to lift a finger. We don't have to hire an attorney to write anything on our behalf. Basically, the Lord steps in in settings and situations that you know, I cannot describe here, but he takes total charge. The facility is put up. Let's move to the next one. And in addition to that, through your generosity, we're building the school in an area where there was a scarcity of water. Well, behold... A water well is constructed that not only serves the school, but that serves the kids. And then desks are provided. We can go to the next one. Desks are provided for the kids. You know, the school is not just a building. You've got to have desks and what have you. And in all of this, something that registers for us is how God in His amazing grace and goodness chooses to supply for the advance of his kingdom, for taking ground for his kingdom. And the theme that was ringing in my heart throughout all of this was, here was God, like only God can, stepping into a situation, redeeming the past. Yes, the past of that place was demonic, it was abusive, it was harassment, it was all kinds of things. And here he is turning it into a weapon in his hands to safeguard a righteous future to the glory of Almighty God. And you know, God is pleased to keep you and I as part of this. And out of this experience came out a principle, which I'd like to share with you before I get to the lesson. You can take it on. It says simply that those who leave everything in God's hands will soon find God's hands in everything. Those who leave everything in God's hands will soon find, will soon see God's hands in everything. Maybe over lunch someday I will tell you the story, but that's a synopsis. And as we transition to the Word this morning, I want to thank again every single one who's come before. I listened to the last two fascinating teachings. Our sister did a marvelous, marvelous job, yes, uh, last Sunday, and that was just so wonderful. And as I get to the message this morning, there's a word on my heart that I want to share, so allow me to pause. I know Pastor Tony is here. Uh, you know, as I was preparing this morning coming in, I just felt two things hit my heart, and I believe this is really from the Lord. First of all, 
to Pastor Jack and, shall I say, that generation, with Pastor Tony, with Tom, and everybody else. I felt strongly in my heart the Lord saying, my delight is in this house. My delight is in this house. You have loved well. You have taught unity well and modeled it. And you have taught and modeled honor really well. There are many things you've taught us. There are many ways you've encouraged us. But in these three dimensions, you have brought into the house called New Covenant. And from this house, through all that are connected here, the delight and the favor of the Lord. The second thing I felt the Spirit of God was saying to my heart this morning is, New Covenant is not only hitting a phase where because of natural reasons or what have you, people are retiring. New Covenant and all associated ministries, sons and daughters of this house, are hitting an inflection point in their lives, in their ministries, in their service to God. Now, an inflection point is a point of change, is a point, you know, it's a season where things shift. Things can shift negatively, they can shift positively. But in this case, it's a positive shift. And two words would characterize that shift. There's going to be a swiftness of the move of God, and there's going to be a suddenly in the move of God. Acts 2.1 says, as they were gathered, suddenly. And I felt specifically for Ian that the Lord would have you prepare your heart for a season of divine interruptions positive interruptions. There will be moments when you feel this is the direction the service will go. But because of the foundation that our fathers have laid through faith, through obedience, through sacrifice, the Lord will be popping into these meetings in ways that they will say, Lord, we wanted this. And the father is saying, I am honoring you through your sons and through your grandsons. Glory and honor to Jesus the Christ. Amen. So if you don't mind, please join me. Let's give a hand to these ones who have labored and set this foundation. Because I believe in my heart firmly that we're coming into the best days for New Covenant and for all of us. Hallelujah. Oh, amen. Amen. Well, I heard Rainer Bonke say, you don't like my preaching. I like it myself. But that, that is God's word, and I stand on that. I believe it firmly. Now. We have a phenomenal time here with God's Word. I want you to picture two things. First thing I want you to picture is you walk into a room full of candy, all types, all types of candy. On your way in, you came by a winding road. That's the language N.T. Wright uses to describe the Gospel of John. It says it's like a winding driveway into a massive palatial structure with rooms furnished and garnished with amazing fixings and candies and all kinds of things. <laughs> As it turns out, you can only have a few. Because if you take all, well, you won't be able to handle those. So this is the sense I have as we come to the Scriptures. And, you know, <laughs> uh, a thought by the late uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, I think uh, Daniel Cogan was his name, uh, brings me encouragement this morning. The encouraging words of Mr. Kogan, uh, Archbishop Kogan, are simply that the Christian preacher is at once a prisoner as he is a free man. He's a prisoner to the text, and he must be true to the teaching of the text, but he's a free man to the context because the scriptures come alive as we apply them to the context to our lives. So bear with me this morning as I raise another question. Imagine that I stood before you, somebody appeared this morning and said, well, I have decided 
to pardon 20 criminals in the state of Pennsylvania, to remit all their offenses and to commute all their sentences. If Julius Esunge is the man saying that, you go, Pastor Tony, did you check the guy out before bringing him? But if it's the governor of Pennsylvania, ah, and following action from the paroles board, then you know things are different. But you know, sometimes the challenge is the governor may walk in and we don't even realize that was the governor because he came without his security detail and what have you. This thing about security detail is going to come down here somewhere. So our lesson this morning is simply titled, The Words of Jesus, ABC. I want to leave us with three words that I have been wrestling with as I look at the words of Jesus in this passage specifically, but the words of Jesus generally. And obviously, we will not have time to look at, you know, 70-some verses, but we can pull out some things that would be relevant, helpful for us. So I want you to say with me, first word, astounding. You see, the word itself is astounding. The second word is beneficial. Can you say that with me? Beneficial. Thank you. The third is consequential. Can you try that? Consequential. Three words. And I pray the Holy Spirit will help us. Now, in the passages we have read, I've pulled out two verses that I want to use for the sake of the discussion, and we'll be going here and there in a few places. In John 7, verse 37, Jesus is speaking. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart, some versions will say out of his belly, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, I was thinking about this, and the first sermon I actually preached a new covenant was from this passage. I uh, will not go through that. John 8, 12 says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is speaking. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Wow. Now think for a moment, who is Jesus speaking to? What do they have at the back of their minds? In John 7, we read that this was right in the midst of the Feast of Booths or Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one of the three major feasts that the Jews had. This one in particular was focused on reminding them of things, remarkable things that had happened in the garden, in, in their wilderness experience. First, the remarkable provision of bread, which we had seen in chapter 6. Pastor Ian covered that for us. And then secondly, the amazing, miraculous provision of water from the rock. They are in a dry and thirsty location. It's all dry around. God supplies to them water. And then third, the amazing protection that they received of the Lord. So when the Jews gather annually for the Feast of Tabernacles, they would leave out in booths, in, you know, uh, structures that they've made with leaves and branches and what have you. And if you had a nice structure, you had a, maybe a terrace up in your, in your house, you could build a makeshift structure there, a tent basically, and live in there as a reminder that, you know, some time back, this is what, this is all we had. We didn't have brick and mortar or anything of the sort. We didn't have anything that we could claim this was ours because we were on a journey. 
and believer, child of God, will do well to remember that on this side, we are on a journey. Sometimes the challenge of faith is when people of God get to the place of thinking, this is home. No, this ain't home. We are passing through here. We're on a journey. And so you have to think about that audience who through the years had been told by successive generations, here is how our journey was. And once a year, they will gather. And what will happen in that feast is the priest will go down to the Gihon Spring, gather some water there, come and pour it on the altar. Do that for seven days. And as he's doing that, the procession, the party, folks who have come from all over into Jerusalem will be singing the words of Isaiah 12 and 3. That, you know, from the springs of water, you will gather, you will pull out eternal life. This is all happening, and Jesus is watching this going on. You may call this some kind of an anticlimax because the reality that was pointed by all of that symbolism is standing right in their midst, and they're clueless. And you see, sometimes in our own journey with the Lord, we get blindsided by the challenges and troubles we face in the here and now that we miss out the very reality and the consciousness that God is with us. God's got this. God is in charge. So on the last day of the feast, Jesus cries with a loud voice, I see what you're doing. I can see that this has been passed on to you. Yes, that was for a purpose. That was for a time. But the reality is standing right in your midst. He of whom Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 12 and 3 is standing right in your midst. If anyone thirst, come. And as if that's not enough, the other thing that will happen in the temple is that they will have these huge candelabras, they call them, you know, torches if you care, that will be lit in the temple and, you know, for, throughout the feast time, these folks will be reminded that the journey of the children of Israel through the wilderness was actually made possible because God himself was in their midst as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So you get the symbolism. All of this is happening and Jesus is right there. The fulfillment of all of these And if I may, is it possible that you and I are in a season of life where the very questions we're raising, the Father has already answered them. We would just need to turn around. But not turning around in the physical, turning our hearts in a posture of obedience. Because in both verses, uh, John 7, 37 and 8, and John 8, 12, in these three verses, he notes simply, if any man thirst. Whoever follows me. So here's what we'd like to note. First of all, that the words of Jesus are basically, if you care, astounding statements. They're surprising statements. These people are satisfied with the tradition that's been handed to them. They know that their fathers have gotten to this land as a fulfillment of all of those things, that the stories that the fathers have told them. And they're fine. This is great. Jesus shows up, maybe like somebody will show up and says, I'm ready to commute the sentences of 20 individuals. And people go, are you okay? Are you in your right mind? Fox shows up, NBC shows up. We just found a madman out in Mekonji. Oh, no, 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 chill. That's the governor of Pennsylvania. 
Problem is, they don't have the advantage of social media and Wikipedia and what have you to check things out. Neither do they have the advantage of a yielded heart, of a heart that's open to truth. So when Jesus speaks to them, they're like, are you in your right mind? And you get it, they say, oh, this dude is demon-possessed. Something isn't right. So work upstairs. Well, I want to note, first of all, that when Jesus declares himself as the light of the world, as the fulfillment of our thirsts, he is making a divine claim. You see, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, the scriptures tell us of this particular instance of their travels through the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by night, pillar, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. That generation did not look at that as some cosmic phenomenon. They knew God. God himself was the one leading them. So Jesus is making a claim to say, you remember this, right? This is what you're celebrating here. He's making a claim to divinity. I'm sure we're all familiar with C.S. Lewis's trilemma, where he basically argues that anyone who says the types of things Jesus says, is one of three things. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And Jesus is making a claim to divinity. He's saying, I am the one that traveled with you. If you look at the account in Exodus 14, 19 to 25, it's even more graphic. It says the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament picture of the Christ, the angel of the Lord traveled with them. So when the story is passed on, the story is not passed on as, you know, there were some climatic effects in the skies and things. No, they recognize God is with us. In Numbers 9, there's even something more compelling, which tells us they did not make a move until that cloud moved. They didn't make a move until the pillar of fire moved. So Moses will cry out, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to leave. So when Jesus says, I am the light, see, all of that was me. He's saying, I am God. And the Jews understood this because Psalm 27, 1, for instance, tells us, the Lord is my light, he's my salvation. So immediately he says that. They understand. You know, it'd be like me saying, I'm here today to commute the sentences. If you understand Pennsylvania law, you will know right away Julius is making a claim to be the governor of the state. In this case, it's a false claim. But then for Jesus, it was a true claim claim to divinity, but secondly, Jesus is making a revealing claim, a revealing claim. Number one, that he is the one to bring to us as the light, the truth about God to us. Look at John 8, 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. In John 1.18, we read, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So his claim to be the light of the world is not only a divine claim, it is a revealing claim. He's saying, I am here as the light to show you who God is, to reveal to you who God is. But not just that, he's also making a claim that through him we can know the truth about ourselves. Oh, 
I'll be happy to know everything God wants to show me. But you know, sometimes for me to embrace who I am in God, I need to know who I am in me. Let me explain. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, I think, this is a great idea. I'm going to follow it. And then Hebrews 4 and 12 reminds me, ah, the word is coming through. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you who God is. I'm going to show you who you are. And I'm going to show God to the rest of the world, to the rest of humanity. And in the process, I will expose your lack, your need, your answer, your remedy. Jesus' claims are not only astounding, my friends. Jesus' claims present to us his words, present to us a beneficial proposition. A beneficial proposition. What is he saying? He's saying in John 7, 37, 38, if anyone thirsts. So there's need to recognize there's a yearning in my heart, there's a longing in my soul. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Whoever believes. Whoever believes, there is some consequential benefit. There's something coming beyond, but there is a basic minimal requirement, belief. Well, what does this mean? In the first place, the beneficial proposition embodies a radical embrace that you and I must relinquish trust in ourselves, trust in our identities, trust in our training, trust in our experiences, our pain, our suffering, or what have you, and put all of that. On Jesus. He says, whoever believes. And it's a choice. Well, Brother Julius, you know, it's hard for me to have faith. I'm going to show you you're a man of faith. We read about men of faith. That man has a lot of faith. Simple exercise. You know, we're very smart people in the room this morning and in Bethlehem everywhere. <laughs> when was the last time you checked that the seat on which you're sitting, whether in the building or in the restaurant, is calibrated to carry your weight. See how much faith you got? You just go in, and with whatever poundage you bring, you toss it there. Because you go, this is going to work. That's faith. But here, this is not faith in the works of man. This is faith in the Creator Himself. And Hebrews 11 would tell us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And for the believer, I love the definition that was handed to us by the late Martin Lloyd Jones, where he says, faith is obedient action to that which God has spoken. Brother, sister, what is God saying to you in the here and now? You and I walk as men and women of faith when we proceed with obedience. That's the sense of the radical embrace. In John 8, 12, he says, whoever follows me. In other words, Jesus, in his words, puts forth a proposition that requires a response. And that response must be that we receive him as our savior from sin, our savior from self, our savior from selfishness, our savior from Satan, and that we commit to obey him as Lord. That's what he says. He says, whoever follows me. You know, do I understand this? Not quite, but he's in charge. Jesus knows the way through the wilderness. All I have to do is to follow. That's a great motto. You see, Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, since you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, walk in him. 
that every single day as children of God, in light of the beneficial propositions that Jesus presents in his words, we walk in understanding that he is not just some suggestion among many. He's not just a prophet among many. He's not just a great man, some really significant player on the national stage, on the international stage. No, he is the real deal. Back to Lewis's trilemma. See, daily, moment by moment, in our homes, in our jobs, in our businesses, in our careers, in our retirement stage or whatever stage we are, we affirm one of three truths. We affirm through our lives and our words, Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. Brother, if your neighbors check things out and your friends and coworkers check things out, how will they describe Jesus from your life? Would they look at your life and say, you know what, there's something going on here we cannot handle, we cannot describe, we can't fathom. This guy must be connected to something beyond the natural. He must be bowing daily to the Lordship of Christ. But his beneficial proposition not only entails a radical embrace, it also involves refreshing promises. Refreshing promises. You see, in Exodus 13, 21, we read, the Lord went before them. Now, if I'm going to go before you, the truth of the matter is, I am with you. I'm just a few feet ahead. So what is the first promise? The promise of his presence. The Lord is with those who follow him. Jesus is saying, if anyone follows me. You know, I'm not going to find myself in Antarctica and I'd say, okay, find your way up here. No, I'm going to lead the way. And one of the most famous passages, precious passages for me personally, in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28 and 20 says, Lo, I am with you always. And he offers this promise in the context of the great missionary assignment handed to pastors, bishops, teachers, prophets, apostles. No, handed to all his followers. He says, go into all the world. You're going through your prayers, you're going through your gifts, you're going through your talents, you're going through whatever resources the Father. And he says, and as you go, I will be with you. Friends, I do not exaggerate. I have Cameroonians in the room who can tell you it clearly was the finger of God that pulled us out of that situation. And the locals stood back and said, this must be the doing of the Lord. In fact, an old man, close to 90, walked up to me and said to me, you have done what Napoleon left undone. And I was like, okay. Well, because of the checkered history of the place, to flip it, like turning a switch. Who does that? Julius? No. God. When his presence is there, you know, the shout of the king is in the house, and he roars for his glory and for his honor. So it's a promise of his presence, but it's also a promise of his guidance. Numbers chapter 9, 17 to 23, still about the business of the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire by night. God will guide you. Here's how he puts it in Psalm 32 and verse 8. I will guide you. I will instruct you. I will be with you with my eye upon you. Yes, you may say to me, Brother Julius, here I stand facing two, three different decisions. Which way do I go? If only you will pause. And listen. And as you pause and listen, you praise and let God take charge. You will receive his guidance. You will receive his instruction. And while you wait, do what waiters do. They serve. There's not only a promise of his presence, his guidance, but there's also a promise of his protection. 
<laughs> Promise of his protection. Exodus 14, 19 to 20 says, Then the angel of the Lord, listen to this. So you know Israel has left. Moses is leading the people. And what does Pharaoh do? Gangs up. We're going after them. And they come this close. God is out here leading his people by night, pillar of fire, by day, pillar of cloud. And when Pharaoh and his men come this close, guess what God does? It's in the text, Exodus 14, 19 to 20. Please read it. God moves from the front and positions himself right between the enemy and his children. That's the reality when we follow him. The promise of his protection. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. No tongue, reasoning, judgment will prevail. This, he declares in Isaiah 52, 17, is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. You see, friends, I fear that sometimes believers, children of God, are afraid to take claims for Christ, to take ground for Christ because they feel, what if I'm left there alone? Well, one with Christ is always in the majority. One with Christ is always in the majority. So we find all of these, but thirdly and finally, as we draw this to a close, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard that they are astounding statements. They are beneficial propositions. They are also a consequential testimony. Consequential testimony. Number one, we notice that when Jesus is speaking, he's also providing an indication that the arguments, the counter-arguments are of a superficial nature. In John 7 verse 20, they describe him as being demon-possessed. I haven't noticed any place where a demon-possessed man gives food to people to eat. <laughs> where he heals the sick and does all of that. It's, it's just superficial. You know, in this day and time, you'll be like, you're witnessing to somebody talking to them about Christ and say, well, hold on, are you, are you vaccinated? Like, right, okay. Uh, where's your mask? Okay, controversial stuff. Superficial. In relation to your eternity. But in the text in John 8, 13, hear what they say to him. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Paraphrase, you're a liar. Okay, what was the issue here? The issue here is earlier in John 5, Jesus had told them, two must give testimony, he and the Father. And here they're accusing him, how dare you stand and say, I am the light of the world. Well, they would have dispensed with this rather easily if they noticed you see the sun out there? Who gives testimony to the sun? S-U-N. The sun. You know it's morning because the sun has testified, I am here. The sun doesn't need somebody else to testify. Or as we say in Africa, the lion needs no bodyguard. Now you think about that. You go, I want to be the lion's bodyguard. Well, you just made yourself into a sandwich, you know. <laughs> Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 tells us, and this is where they are struggling especially in relation to the woman caught in adultery. Phenomenal passage. I don't have time to touch it. But Deuteronomy 17, 6, the very law they claim to be standing on says you've got to have two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, 15 echoes the same thought. Deuteronomy 17, verse 7 says the accusers will be the ones to cast the first stone. Okay? So here comes John 8. They found the woman. By the way, a last check. One woman alone doesn't commit adultery. It's okay. I brought just the woman. Where's the other dude? We don't know. And Jesus says, okay, you have come by what means? By the law, right? Let's do it by the law. The law provides that the accusers will cast the first stone. So Jesus is not just being careless when he says, 
the one without sin should cast the first stone. He's saying, you have come as accusers, right? Right? And they go, uh, <coughs> no, not quite. We're, we're, we're sorry. Because if they are the accusers, they should cast the first stone. But the trouble is, he who comes to equity must come with clean hands. Oh boy, I need to leave that. Keep going. <laughs> it's a testimony that's consequential in relation to the fact that the excuses people present are of a superficial nature. I think it's the French philosopher Victor Hugo who said, I don't want there to be a God. He's not saying there's no God. He says, I don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God that imposes on me certain expectations, and I don't want to live with those kinds of expectations, so I prefer to rule out the existence of God. Wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. There's a lot of trouble in that reasoning, but we don't have time. Basically, you cannot start from a false promise and reach a right conclusion. So they're all of a superficial nature. I remember in my time as a student, some of my professors will say, well, you know, there's so many contradictions in the Bible. I had a gentleman who was teaching a course in differential equations who had his doctorate from Oxford. He said, well, Julius, I hear you're the campus pastor. I said, no, I'm a student. He said, well, anyway, word is out, you're the campus pastor. So, Bible has many contradictions. Jesus hung on the cross, ninth hour or third hour. What's going on? Three and nine can be the same, right? He said, yeah, well. Easy. It's 11.35 in McConjie, Pennsylvania. What time is it in Sacramento, California? That you call a contradiction? No. The Jewish recorded time one way. The Romans recorded time another way. And today we have civilian time, military time. You can play with that often of a superficial nature. But there's also a testimony here, consequential testimony of these folks abiding in darkness. John 3:19 tells us and this is the judgment. The words of Jesus ABC that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now let me ask you as we draw this to a close. Are the words of Jesus still hitting your heart as astounding? Astounding as compelling you to a place of worship, of surrender, of obedience. Because you behold the beneficial propositions therein and you say, How dare I live without his presence, without his guidance, without his protection? I'm meat for my enemies. When we reject his words, we then place ourselves in a place where the rejection itself is superficial. And the rejection itself testifies against us that it is exactly because we're in darkness and we prefer to stay there. But thank God, because he, Jesus, is the light of the world. And he's so much the light of the world that he, even his honest detractors, will testify. William Lecky is a famous European philosopher who notes in a history of European morals, from Augustus to Charlemagne, speaking about Jesus, he says, the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Mind you, he wasn't a believer, but he was an honest man. And when he eyeballs Jesus in his words, in his character, in his life, he notes 
no one greater. So what hindered? Belief. I don't know where you stand in relation to the promises of God over your life and their fulfillment. That bridge is called belief. Trusting in Jesus. Committing to following Him. I close with the three most essential needs we have. Snow season is wrapping up, but you hear the announcements on the radio, and if the worship team will come, that will be fine. Um, they will tell us to do what? Make sure you get some bread. Make sure you get some water. Make sure you have batteries. Friends, it's no accident that in John 6, 7, and 8, these three thoughts are captured. Bread, water, light. And Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the water of life. And Jesus is the light of the world. And what I'd like you and I to do is in a simple prayer this morning, affirm our faith in Him. I'm going to pray, and I would invite you to pray with me. Is that okay? You can say with me, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge today that without you, I am nothing. I open my heart to you. Come into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Help me to follow you daily. Help me to obey you as you guide me, as you tabernacle in me, and as you protect me. Fill me, Lord, with your Spirit. In Jesus' name. If it's the first time you're praying this, maybe online or in person, there will be information on the screen that you can follow along to receive some literature, a number to call or text to get some help. But for the rest of us here, I pray as you go into this week, go with the confidence that the lion of the tribe of Judah himself is in your presence, he's your guide, and he's your protector. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.